and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Brendan, for that reading. I'm going to give you just a second to pull out those sermon outlines that you find in the announcement sheet this morning as we get into our second lesson out of the book of Judges. We're in the second week of our study with our adult Bible classes and as well as the the sermon series. And this morning we're going to be looking at this text out of Joshua chapter 1 that Brendan has just read for us. The promised land is the land that God chose for the story of redemption to be staged and to be played out throughout history. And the land becomes a very, very important piece of real estate in the world, and it's full of significance. And what I want to do is, is to, uh, to deal basically with some of the issues that come because the land was occupied at the very beginning of the conquest by people who had lived there for centuries, and to deal with this idea of, of, of the war and the, the driving out of the nations this morning, right here at the beginning of our, our series on Joshua. I'm going to ask God to bless us as we study this morning by going to Him in prayer. I'm going to ask you to join me by bowing your heads as we join our hearts and speak to the Father. Father, these words have, have been read to us. For many, many years, and through those years, we've heard them many, many times. And it's our prayer, Father, that regardless of how familiar and acquainted we might believe we are with them, we pray to be driven even deeper into their meaning and and deeper into the depth of, of, of meaning that they have for our life. And the changes that, that need to be brought about in our life, Father, as we align ourselves more closely to Your will, that we too will be strong and courageous in doing this. For we want nothing more, Father, than, than to, to live according to Your will as it has been revealed to us through Your Word and modeled for us perfectly in the life of Jesus. And so give us eyes that see this morning and ears that hear. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin uh, outside of Joshua this morning. I want to go to the end of Deuteronomy. We're going to have two rather long readings at the beginning of this message. Uh, The first coming at the end of Deuteronomy, the other at the beginning of Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 31. I want to read the first four verses. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to leave you. The Lord has said to me, You shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God Himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what He did to Sion and Og, the king of the Amorites, whom He destroyed along with their land. That's the end of Deuteronomy, the beginning of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, the first six verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River 
into the land I am about to give you to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of, to Lebanon, from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. This is God's Word. You know, it's really impossible to study the book of Joshua without asking a couple of questions that are connected to the fact that there is a lot of violence and a lot of death and a lot of war and battles and bloodshed in this book. And these questions are, are formulated in a lot of different ways. A couple of the ways most popular that you hear them stated, they go like this. Was it right for Israel to march into a land and to take a land that other nations had been inhabiting for centuries and to just drive them out? Or you might hear it phrased this way, how do you justify the annihilation? How do you justify the slaughter of the Canaanites at the hand of Israel, especially in light of the teachings of Jesus? Tough questions. It's been dealt with in a lot of different ways, in probably every way that you can imagine there has been somebody that has tried to reconcile these texts. Uh, as early as the second century, the middle of the second century, we're talking about somewhere between 140 and 150 uh, A.D., there was a fellow by the name of Marcion of Sinope who was uh, considered to be an early Christian heretic. He, he considered himself to be a Christian, but he was later uh, sort of branded a heretic because he did not believe in the God of the Old Testament. He believed that the God of the Old Testament was a rough God, was a harsh God, was a bloodthirsty God, he was a tyrant, and that the God of the New Testament... Was, uh, was, was more in line with the teachings of Jesus and reflective of really the, the, the high view of God that he considered himself to have. That the, the God of the Old Testament in no way was able to align himself with the, the, the kinds of things that were happening in the Old Testament, primarily in places like the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, with that of the New Testament. And you know, later on, he was denounced by Tertullian as a heretic, as, as he should have been. But one of the things that that Marcion wanted to do was because he just could not reconcile the Old Testament God with the New Testament God is he wanted to get rid, basically, of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, he was denounced by Tertullian. There was, there, was a, there was a branding him as a heretic. But that idea that Marcion kind of embodied there for a period of time in the middle of the second century survives even to this day. And the way that you hear it phrased, maybe another way that you hear it questions, the, the phrase of the question goes like this. Was the God of the Old Testament bloodthirsty? And was the God of the Old Testament then converted to Christianity? And it's sort of said tongue-in-cheek, but there's a lot of uh, realistic feelings and, and angst behind that question. Here's what I propose that we do. What I propose is that here's the solution. The solution is to figure out what the Bible says and then let the chips fall where they will. Study the Bible. Let the Bible say what it has to say. Figure out what it is that the Bible is trying to say to us and then let the, chop, the, the, the chips fall where they, where they may. 
And so what we want to do this morning is we consider these questions and what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks in the book of Joshua. Here's kind of an ordered way of thinking about God as He reveals Himself in Joshua and what the Bible says. Number one, there's no way around this. This is what the Bible speaks. The conquest was God's will. It is God's will. It is a part of His plan. It is God who is speaking and giving the order to the people of Israel, the B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel, to go into the land and to take it. But here's one of the facts that we may have forgotten. It was announced when the covenant was ratified with Abraham lots of centuries before we actually get to the first chapter of Joshua. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16. It'll be up here on the screen. If not, open your Bibles up to Genesis 15. Very important chapter in the entire Bible. Not just Genesis or the Old Testament. Very important chapter in the entire Bible. It's God and Abraham together. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation, Egypt. They serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And then in verse 16, In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And the people of uh, the, the Amorites kind of became a, uh, an all-inclusive people term for all of the people of Canaan. Now, one of the things that comes out of us, especially in verse 16, is that there will always be a day of reckoning. Now, let's just bring it, let's not even look at it in terms of the cosmic universal justice that God is, is talking about in terms of, of right and wrong and good and evil. I mean, think about it even in terms of, of this microcosm that we live in our own lives. You're driving along and you keep ignoring a red light on the dash of your car that tells you to change oil. What's going to happen? You keep ignoring it. You keep ignoring the good information that that gauge is giving you, that that red light is giving you about the state of your motor, that your motor is not well, and you ignore it, ignore it, neglect, neglect, forget about it, put it off, procrastinate, all of those kinds of things. What's going to happen to that motor? It's finally going to seize up because of the problem with the oil. There's always a day of reckoning if you never reconcile your checkbook. You just write check after check after check after check. You're putting money in, but you never really try to figure out how much is going out as it relates to how much is going in and what happens. The next thing you know, there is a letter in the mail that says you're overdrawn or there's an email alert that comes to you on your, in your outlook saying you need to take a look at your account, you're overdrawn. And all of these charges, I don't know what it is these days, $20, uh, $30, whatever it is, all of these have been assessed to your account. The same thing is true with, with marriages. You have, you have marriages that, that, uh, that end in divorce because a couple decided to neglect or to put off or to ignore the flags that were waving in their face that not all was right in paradise. And what happens a lot of time is that by the time you get to that point where you want to do something about the problem, you want to do something about the issue that you've been putting off and neglecting, well, by that time it's too late. There is always a day of reckoning. And what Genesis chapter 15 tells us is that God gave the Canaanites four generations, 400 years to be precise, 
to repent. Now the question is, how could they repent? How could they do whatever it is they needed to do if there was nobody there that was to preach? Well, remember that there were people in the land. Melchizedek is just one example of people that were God-fearers that had connected themselves to the one true God of the universe, the Creator God that we know as Yahweh. There was the preaching. There was the example. There was the teaching. There was the information that was needed. There were people of faith that were in the land. And then the flip side of that coin is, is that God was always, there has never been a place in the Bible where somebody during the time that they were given wanted to come to God in faith, in repentance, in humility that God turned away. I mean, think about the very beginning of the book of Joshua. You have a Canaanite people in Jericho, but there is Rahab who has turned to God in faith. And it is Rahab who is saved. Rahab is an example of this. But the reason that there was this punishment was that, number two, Canaan was in rebellion against God. It was God's will for the people to go into the land. It was going to be a, a possessing of the promised land at the same time a punishment of the sin that was in the land. Canaan was in rebellion against God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices... The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. But you, Israel, very important verse, underline verse 13 in your Bibles. But you must be blameless before the Lord your God. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Now, although we think of ourselves as living in a very modern world, in a modern time, and with a modern set of problems, spiritually speaking, we still fight an ancient battle. The same cosmic battle that we are struggling with today that's taking place today in the lives of everyone was also happening then. The Canaanites had sold out to the kingdom of darkness. The Canaanites were actively engaged in the work of demons. And one of the things that is clear from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation is that God will always wage war against that kingdom. In fact, it is His will to destroy that kingdom of darkness of which Satan is the head. We've been looking on Sunday nights over the last couple of months at 1 John, one of the primary, most important verses out of 1 John in letting us know what it is that God's will is for His creation is found in the third, chap uh, third chapter. The John the Apostle writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And when God led the people across the Jordan River, it was a physical manifestation of His intent to destroy the work of Satan. And it foreshadowed what Christ was fully going to accomplish in the cross. But in Joshua's time, number three, Israel was to be that instrument of God's judgment. 
Now, one of the things that when, when we look at Joshua and we look at Judges and we look at all of the things that are happening with the Philistines in the historical books, one of the things that we forget is that what's happening in, in the book of Joshua as these people are heading across from the east side of the Jordan River to the west side of the Jordan River to possess the land. And they go against Jericho. And then after that, they go to Ai. And then they go north. And then they go south. And they, they're driving people out. Is that this is not the first time in the history of the Bible that God's judgment had come down on just, as destruction of a people in rebellion to Him. Go all the way back to the very beginning of, of Genesis. And you have a world that God looks at, His own creation, in which sin has entered. And because sin has entered, there is a corrupting of everything that God created that was good. The relationships between man and God have been altered. The relationship between other human beings, man to man, man and woman, have been, have been tainted because of sin. Creation is no longer good in the way that it was originally created to be. There is, there is a striving with God. And there comes very early in the history of the world, God looking down upon the world. In the Bible, some of the most heartbreaking words in the entire Bible is that God looks at what creation has become, what man has become, and He grieves in His heart that He made man. And what did He do? goes to Noah. He says, I want you to build a boat. Noah is a righteous man. And Noah, because of his righteousness, he and his family are saved along with you know, pairs of animals, clean and unclean. But God brings a destruction in judgment in the form of, of the flood, in the form of, of the rain, to wipe out the face of the earth. And then it's not too many years after that that because Sodom and Gomorrah have become so rebellious and such an oppressive society and, and, and a, a, a degraded society in terms of its humanity that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed with fire from heaven. And that wickedness that was pervasive and rampant in the world that was destroyed by water and fire from heaven will now be brought down by a nation. And Canaan has already been judged in Genesis. And now that judgment, 400 years, is coming to pass. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. After the Lord, beginning in verse 4, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, He's talking to Israel, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my, what's the word? Righteousness. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness. Then verse 5, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. The driving out of the Canaanites did not happen because Israel was superior in any form or fashion. I mean, there were, I mean, this is Pharisee thinking before there were any Pharisees on the face of the earth. That God is doing this for me because I'm, 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 there's something kind of beautiful and winsome about my life. That He's doing this for me in the context of Joshua because we happen to have integrity and we happen to have righteousness. God is saying through Moses, no. You are an instrument of punishment 
on that land. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of their wickedness. I mean, the question is, wasn't Israel wicked as well? And the answer to that is yes. And there was, number four, not a double standard. There was not a double standard. There was not one standard for Canaan that they had to live a certain way and God brought the hammer on them because they weren't living up to it. That same standard, in fact, maybe even more so, was applied to Israel. God would not drive Israel out, uh, the, the Canaanites out of the land because of their wickedness and then allow Israel to stay even though their wickedness, at times, it seemed knew no bounds. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19, Moses again speaking. You know, the, the, we're spending a lot of time in Deuteronomy here because in Deuteronomy you have basically three sermons by Moses to the people to get them ready to go into the land. And he's instructing and instructing and instructing them to think the right way about what they're going to experience and see when they cross the Jordan and go into, the west, into that west bank and in, into that area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And, and he says in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 8, If you ever forget the Lord your God, if you forget God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord, the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. And that's, that is exactly what happened to Israel. You know, going uh, some years down the road, kind of a fast history lesson on, on the nation of Israel. The Israelites, uh, they wanted a king after the period of the judges. They wanted to be like the other nations. And they began to clamor for a king. And there were all kinds of warnings against having that king. But they wanted to have a king. And so there was a king that was anointed. His name was what? Saul. Saul was the very first king of Israel. But Saul had a, a, a falling out with God, and there was another king that rose up by the name of David. And David enhanced Israel's borders and, and, and fortified its, 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 its territories, and, and Israel became great, and David was a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and Acts chapter 13, it says that about David, that he was a man after God's own heart. And then after David came... Solomon. And Solomon reigned and the borders of the kingdom of Israel expanded to probably their greatest area. But then after Solomon's death, Rehoboam becomes king, Solomon's son. And a fellow by the name of Jeroboam who was in exile down in Africa because he and Solomon did not see eye to eye on some things. And Jeroboam had to leave Israel with his, you know, to, to save his life. He comes back and challenges Rehoboam to, 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 to show himself to be a true king. And he says, you know, your father Solomon worked the people hard. He, he turned them into slaves and taxed them heavy in order to build this great kingdom. The people are tired. Now you give them rest. Rehoboam goes back. He talks to the wise men, the elders of Israel. And they say, you know what? You know what? That's pretty good advice. Give the people rest. They'll love you. Then he goes to the young guys. I don't know what it is about young guys. They always want to be tough. And the young guys say, no, don't do that. You need to be seen as strong. Say, you know, you're, you know, if you thought Solomon, my father, was tough, wait till I get a hold of you. And Rehoboam foolishly says, you know what, I think that's what I'm going to do. And the kingdom divides at that point because the people get angry. And they, there are ten tribes that go north with Jeroboam, and there are two tribes that go south with Rehoboam, and the kingdom is, is divided. 
And everything with those ten tribes for, for many years just continues to go south, spiritually speaking. Until you get to about, uh, about 722, 721 B.C. And because of the idolatry, because of the, 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 the lack of Torah being practiced in the land, because there is oppression in the land, because the rich are oppressing the poor, because there's all kinds of terrible things that are happening within the community of Israel and those ten northern tribes, God brings the Assyrians and those ten tribes go off into punishment because they forgot God and began to act like Canaanites. And about 150 years later, the same thing happened to those two tribes in the south, beginning in 607 with the Babylonians, and then again in 596, and then finally in 586, the Babylonians had enough of, of, of south Judah, and they go in there and they destroy that, 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 that capital city of Jerusalem, and they tear the walls of the temple down. There was not a double standard. The same judgment that fell on the Canaanites fell on Israel. The reason, number five, is because God takes seriously holiness and obedience. In Deuteronomy 7, the beginning of the chapter, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Then verse 16, You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. There is still that same call to holiness. Over in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is speaking to a people that are being trounced by the Roman Empire. And they're beginning to wonder, you know, who is really in charge? Do we trust God who is in heaven or do we trust the king or the emperor that is sitting there on the throne in Rome? And they're beginning to question the power of God and the, the power of the empire. And one of the things that Peter encourages them to do is to remember who God is. And he says to them in verse 15, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. You know, God is wanting people to, to come out of their rebellion to Him and to come into relationship with Him. And that's why, number six, God is patient. The New Testament is replete with warnings about the wrath of God being poured out on those who are in rebellion to Him. The book of Romans, which is you know, one of the greatest uh, pieces of, of, of inspired writing on what grace and the gospel is all about. At the very beginning of that book, verse 18, 
Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Some of the other translations, the, the, the wrath of God is being poured out on all ungodliness. There will be a day of reckoning because holiness and relationship with that holy God is important to God. And that's why Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, don't forget one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is what? Patient. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that's why we need to always keep in mind that number seven, a final judgment, is coming in the future. A final judgment is coming in the future. Does, you know, God does not change and the Bible does not stutter when it mentions judgment on those that have spurned Jesus of Nazareth as, as Lord and Savior. And the destruction of Canaan, is, it, it still instructs the church today. Even though we have Romans chapter 8, and we know that there's no condemnation that is in Christ. And we know that through faith in the book of Galatians, through faith in the faith of Jesus, we find salvation and relationship. We become sons and heirs with Christ of all the inheritance that God wants to give us. It has to be through faith in Him. And that means obedience and holiness, knowing, knowing that there is always a day of reckoning, always a day of judgment. And that final judgment is coming. And what's really at stake is this. You know, the Bible talks a lot. Of, the New Testament speaks a lot about hell and describes it in all kinds of different ways. You know, it's dark and there's fire. There's a, a worm that never dies. It's, it's, a, it's a place of, of gnashing of teeth and of torment. You know, I may not have suffered like uh, a lot of people in the world, I wouldn't even put my suffering, I, I, compared to their suffering, I haven't really suffered. But I think we all know what pain is. We know what it means to be fearful. We know what it means to, 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 to be tortured, at least in our thinking and in our souls and in our hearts because of disappointment. We, we know about that kind of pain. And when the Bible speaks about that kind of separation from God for all of eternity, it, it, you know, it's not really that pain that is as fearful to me as, as the, this, this next statement I'm going to make that I believe with every part of my heart. The most fearful thing about hell is that hell is that place where you're separated from God. And there is never going to be a chance that God is going to come for you. On the flip side of that, the Bible talks a lot about heaven and eternity with God. There's feasting. There are streets of gold. It's part of the imagery to help us to understand how beautiful God is. God is there at the center. All tears are going to be wiped away. There's no disease. There's no cancer. There's the, the things that torment us on this, in this life are not going to be a part of eternal life with, with God. And all of these things are, are beautiful. But you know what the most amazing thought, truth about heaven is to me? It is the never-ending, without-ceasing, always-abiding presence of God. And as we, we, we think about 
those two realities that the Bible talks about. What it boils down to is a commitment. Knowing throughout all of these examples in history that those that spurned God's will, that those that rejected God, those that, that, that turned away from God and followed other gods, whatever they might be, from, from stone images to things that are in our heart more important to God Himself but turned away from God because of those things, that there was always a judgment, that there was always destruction based on that decision, either to turn away and destruction or to turn towards and to prosper and to find the right kinds of help in our relationships and in our thinking and in our perspectives and in our values. It's because of Christ. And what Christ did on the cross was to take all of that judgment and all of that destruction that we do deserve and to take it upon Himself so that we never have to face that judgment like that. The Bible tells us that our sins were judged on the cross of Jesus. That God took our iniquity and put it on Him in order for us to become righteous. And because it's by that kind of a gift of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, we want to live a holy life and we do want to be obedient. We want to live a life that's worthy of every ounce of love that God has shown us in Christ. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If we can minister to you in any way, help you become a better disciple, more obedient and holy in God's sight as you live out the ramifications of your salvation, or if it's to help you find that faith and what that faith means in terms of obedience to God where you are forgiven and you are saved and you are reconciled to God, then these shepherds will be more than happy to talk to you about that. Come down and talk to them down here at the front as we stand and sing together. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me on the cruel cross.